In the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, or probably more correct, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, we see a story in chapter 17. This is Paul and Silas. Paul, that uh, a persecutor of the Christian church, the one voted least likely to ever be a Christian. He and Silas are entering into the city of Thessalonica. And when they show up, the crowds begin crying out, and they say, these men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here to do the same also. Well, the crowds were half right, that the world was getting turned upside down, but it wasn't these men that were doing it. In fact, blaming Paul and Silas was incredibly incorrect. It was the person that they served who was turning the world upside down. We are now 20 chapters into the book of Matthew. We've got a few more to go, seven more chapters to go after this week and next. And one thing that is very clear is that Jesus' idea, his, his picture of the kingdom of heaven is nothing like what this world puts out there. This world that we live in, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Yes, I know we're talking about America. Not The whole world is not capitalistic like we are. We're not, they're not as focused on greed and money like we are and leisure and entertainment like we are. But our culture is a culture that espouses a certain kind of leadership, a certain kind of getting forward. But Jesus' kingdom is the exact opposite. It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how fast you did something compared to others. It's not about whether you're more powerful, better looking, stronger, bigger, richer, more intelligent. See, the world's all about how can I get up? What do I have to do to attain the highest? Katie and I were watching a uh, movie last night, and there was the bad guy, and he was a, uh, a guy in the CIA, and he was talking about how he had graduated in three years when it took people four, and he'd moved up in eight years from the very beginning to the director of the CIA, and he'd done it by trampling on people left and right. And if we're honest, that's the way the world works. That's the way our culture works. Whatever you got to do to get ahead, do it even if it means bending or breaking some rules. On the other hand, Jesus' kingdom is the exact opposite. This is a kingdom where the king doesn't send people to die for him. No, he goes and dies for them. The leaders serve instead of getting served. The leaders aren't the ones with the prestige who get everyone caring for them. They're the ones going to care. In this kingdom, Jesus says that the rich require a miracle to be saved. In the world's kingdom, the rich are the ones that are saved, right? They're the all-powerful masters of the universe. In this kingdom of Jesus, his, his followers rush to serve. They love to serve. Now, lest the world try to make it mercenary, we understand, and we've seen this before, we don't serve to earn. We can't do it. We are the least. There is nothing we can give to God that can earn our salvation. But yet we serve out of gratitude for what he's done. We joyfully serve our suffering Savior. This is the kingdom that the last is first and the first is last. This kingdom makes no sense to our world. 
But that should be a, a, a moment of comfort for us. Because like the Apostle Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Jesus is not doing anything different than what Paul teaches post-resurrection, post-crucifixion. It's the same story. The way up is down. And those who go up, they need to go down. They cannot be about themselves. They need to be about the king. And this kingdom is on display in our passage today. In this kingdom, true greatness is not what you'd expect it's not about the accolades. It's not about the money. It's not about the position. It's not about the prestige. It's about serving the one who is all of those. True greatness comes only by tasting the grace of God. And grace, by its definition, is something you can't earn. It's a gift. It's something that is given to us. We can't pay it back. So here's our main idea for today. Jesus is our courageous and caring shepherd, period. He's courageous and he's caring. And our response to this, our application, I'll get it right here at the beginning, we're to pattern our lives after him by being servants like him. This is the picture that we have before us today. We have this shepherd who is courageous and we have a shepherd who is caring and his sheep come along and say, I want to be top sheep. And he goes, you don't know what you're asking. Because to be one of mine, you've got to be the lowest. You have to suffer like me. You have to be a servant like me. So this is where we're going today. So where we've been, we've spent some time uh, looking at this last verses first, first verses last. We saw the rich young ruler come and say, I'm, I've done everything. What else do I have to do? Jesus says, get rid of the idol of wealth and you'll be set. He couldn't do it. He loved it too much. Then last week we saw the parable, not of the vineyard workers, but of the vineyard owner who comes along and says, it's my money. I'm going to give it out how I see fit. And whether you are the first ones working for me or you squeak in just under the wire, you get the same reward of eternal life with me. So today, Jesus is going to continue that teaching. Verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the man, Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So before we get into what this is all saying, look at the first word of verse 18. It's the word see. That, that's a word that is traditionally very hard for us to translate into English. It's a Greek word. It, it's been translated in some of your translations as behold. Um, it's probably best translated as surprise, but that does, again, doesn't really work very well for us. You know, we're expecting balloons and a party after we hear that. But instead, what this is, is this is a shocking turn. And Matthew uses this about a dozen times where he says, surprise, this is not what you expected. All right, last time he was talking about the last being first, and he was talking about the eternal life, and then surprise, Jesus starts talking about death. It's shocking. It's meant to shock us. And again, C doesn't really do it, but now you'll be looking for them, and when you see C there, you'll go, all right, this is meant to shock me. 
This is the third of Jesus' four predictions of his death. And this is the most explicit this far. This is also Jesus' most pastoral. And we'll get into that in a minute. So it says in verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a hill. They call them mountains in Israel, but they're not mountains. Come on. You know, they're just little hills. Most of the world calls hills mountains. We know better, right? It's a hill. So just to kind of give you the picture, they're to the east of Jerusalem down in the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is working its way to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. And they've left the Jordan Valley and they're working their way up into the hills to be in Jerusalem. And they'll go through Jericho. Jericho, we'll see that next week. But this road winds its way through. Once they get to Jericho, it's about a, almost a day's walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And you've got to walk it in one day because here's the thing. It's all wilderness. There's this one path that takes you up there. And if you don't get through that path by nightfall, you're putting your life in danger. Because this is a path that is hounded by thieves and robbers. This is the path that the story of the Good Samaritan takes place on. Literally, some people call this the valley of the shadow of death. And it's this little path. And Jesus is literally walking the path of the valley of shadow of death to go to Jerusalem to die. I mean, the symbolism is just too rich in this passage. So they're winding this road up to Jerusalem. Jesus pulls his disciples apart, aside, not apart, aside. That's different. He pulls them aside and says, I want to talk to you about this. Now, why does Jesus do this? He's following, being followed by a crowd He could just declare this, right? Now, who is this going to land on the hardest? It's not going to land on the guy that just started following Jesus when they saw him at the Jordan River. It's not going to be somebody that lands on somebody who just joined him from the Galilee. It's going to land on these 12 men greater than anyone else. They've been with Jesus now for several years. They've had dinners with him. They've, they've, They've done things with him. He sent them out. They've come back. And so Jesus pulls them aside and goes, I need to explain this to you, and I really want to make sure you guys are okay. See, Jesus cares for his disciples. This would have really hurt some of them. This would have confused them. See, Jesus is the ultimate pastor. The word pastor means to shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd. He sits them down. He says, let me tell you what's coming. And this is very important. This would have been scandalous to them, to hear that Jesus would be mocked, would be crucified, flogged. And I don't know if they heard the last part where it says, oh, and he'll raise from the dead, but they definitely heard the first part and were like, what is going on here? See, the cross is scandalous. We need to see it as scandalous. You know, some of the the crosses, and I, I, I like our cross we have up here, but it wouldn't have looked like that. It would have been rough. It would have been disgusting. It would have been used over and over again. The cross is a scandal. Crosses were not used for Roman citizens because it was deemed too gruesome for them, which is probably why the Apostle Paul had his head cut off as opposed to crucified when he was killed, the persecution under Nero. The cross was something gruesome. And so when we see that Jesus is going to the cross, and the reason he is going to the cross is our sins, and God pouring out his wrath on it, the cross becomes more beautiful. 
Even if we had one up here that looked historically accurate, to us as believers, it becomes beautiful because it's so scandalous, it's so bad, but yet he did it willingly. Spurgeon writes this, It was not altogether timidity, but awe that came over the disciples. Jesus' manner was so majestic and sublime. After describing the horrible things awaiting him, leading him to his death because he was the Passover lamb, Jesus stated that he would rise from the dead. We must never forget this fact. In fact, he never forgot it. You might as as much as you think as much as you will of Calvary, but do not forget that our Christ is not in the grave. See, sometimes when we look at Jesus, we get this kind of truncated version of Jesus. Like we take one little characteristic of him and we kind of camp on it. We need to make sure we get a full understanding of Jesus. When the Bible says Jesus is the good shepherd, there's a lot to that. It's not just he's hanging out with the sheep and kind of petting them and you know doing their hair and just like hanging out. We can't overcorrect, right? We all know Jesus is gentle and lowly. The Bible's very clearly on that. Many of you have read that book. I know I have and have referenced it before. But we can't overcorrect and say Jesus is only gentle and lowly because there's a side of shepherds that you don't want to mess with if you're a wolf. This Jesus is the kind who would go after the sheep, whether it's in the wolf's mouth or if it's just wandering like dumb sheep do. Jesus was a good shepherd. Shepherds kill wolves. Shepherds defend flock. Shepherds go into the dark by themselves to find the sheep that's gone missing. So there is a perspective of Jesus we can't miss. Jesus is courageous. Jesus is bold. Jesus is brave. So you're like, okay, where do we see this in this passage? Well, look at what it says here. He says, I know what's coming. I'm walking to Jerusalem knowing that I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be crucified. And yet he still does it. Jesus, in his omniscience that he has as the God-man, knows exactly what this is. And he lived his life knowing it was coming. Think about that. Right? Some of you have a dentist appointment that you're dreading in a few weeks, and you're trying to find a way out of it, and we've got anesthetic, right? Jesus is staring down the cross, which was designed to give you as much pain as possible. He, can, he doesn't have to imagine what the pain of the nails are. He put the atoms of those nails together. As the nails go through his wrists, and hit the nerve that he created, he knows what that's going to feel like. When his back is flogged and filleted open so that ribs go flying, internal organs out in the open, he formed the animal that became the leather that became the whip. He knows the hairs on the heads of the Roman centurions who are pounding the nail through his heel. He knows all of it. See, if we were there watching this crucifixion, we would throw up. We would pass out. 
a man stripped naked on a piece of wood, tortured to death, drowning in his own internal fluids. Crucifixion, you didn't die from blood loss. The Romans were too good at it. Instead, as you hung there, the position they had you in, your lungs would fill with fluid. This is what our Savior knows is coming, and yet he doesn't go, nah, pass, I'm good. He goes, I'm marching towards that. I'm going towards that. So we need to add some words to this. Because yes, we go, okay, yeah, Jesus, he was crucified, but he knew he was getting resurrected. Okay, but stop for a second. He knew he was getting resurrected, but that doesn't change the pain. It doesn't change the terribleness. They invented a word to describe what it's to be on a cross. It's the word excruciating. So I know we use that word. This hangnail is so excruciating. It's the wrong use of that word. Excruciating means to be crucified. Our Savior was crucified. He felt that excruciating pain. And he chose to walk the road. He chose to go up to Jerusalem, knowing this was coming. You know, we are called, and I'm going to talk to men. Men, we're called to do this. We're called to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and be like Jesus. Even if it's hard to do. Even if it's painful. And it doesn't fit with my plans for my life. Because just like Jesus... There's nothing meek and mild here in this, is there? There is courage. There is steadfastness. There is fortitude, bravery, determination, gallantry, grit, valor, tenacity, firmness. There's heroism. Jesus is the hero. So those of you that know him, it's time to start being like him. And men, there should be no doubt if we're following Jesus that we are like him in our courage and our boldness in denying ourselves. This is the story that we're looking at. This is the hero. Yes, he's gentle and meek and mild with his sheep, but with the wolves, he is bold and brave and courageous because guess what? Both make up the hero that is Jesus. Don't miss this God, man. He is amazing. So this is our first point, that Jesus is courageous and caring. We see them both here. Now let's move into verse 20. James and John's mother is going to make a request. Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. So now, many people think that James and John's mother, whose name was Salome, was Mary's sister. So Mary as in Jesus' mom. So that kind of explains why there's, it's not so inappropriate that some mom's just walking up to Jesus and saying, Hey, can you? I mean, these guys would have been related to Jesus. So there's some, you know, if Jesus is a king, then if we're related, how's that work? Okay, we're related. We can be a duke. We can be a follower. To sit at the right and the left is to be the first and the second in charge. It's a place of prestige. So we look at this. She says, let them sit there. This is an interesting Interesting ask. She's asking for her sons, and I'll show you where we see that here in a minute. She's not doing it on her own. But she asks something, 
And what's interesting is that she asks something and there's some right in it and there's a lot of wrong in it. And we need to remember that sometimes when we're asking God for something, we might be doing it in the right way and in the right thing, but then we add some bad theology into it. And instead of God going, I'm not listening to that, he still is gracious and takes it, which is amazing. But we always need to be checking ourselves. When we're praying and we're asking for something, make sure that we're in line with what the Bible teaches and not just throwing in some of the world cliches and things like that. And I'll show you what I mean here. So we see three things in the mom's question. We see pride, we see ignorance, and we see trust. So we'll put this in a sentence. This is a prideful, ignorant, trusting prayer. Right? I mean, we look at that and we go, I don't think those words go together. Prideful, ignorant, and trusting. Let's look at it. So the first thing we see is that they're proud. They think they deserve it. They're ignorant in that they think true greatness is about prestige. But they're trusting in that they ask Jesus for it. So how are they proud? Well, they're proud because they think they can get this spot because of something they've done. Forgetting that their value is only because Jesus chose them. They weren't graduating from the best Jewish seminaries. They weren't the top of the fishing food chain, the CEO of a big conglomerate. No, Jesus went and found two fishermen and said, come be with me. I mean, we all want to be honored. Some of you in this room, you have the love language of affirmation, which means you need to hear kind words to you in order to feel loved. Others of you have all the other different love languages. I think there's a love language of sarcasm, though. Um, and I think that I know a few people in this room who might have that. Um, but uh, the, the love language of affirmation is tough, right? We, we want to be affirmed in what we do, but we can also make that our motivation for why we do it. This pride that they're, they're putting out there says, I've done this, I deserve it. I've risen faster than everyone else. I've sold more than everyone else. I've gotten better grades. I've achieved higher status. But positions in God's kingdom are not given out that way, which is a relief because there's always someone better. Instead, it's about going lower and being the one who serves, ultimately remembering that the eternal life that we are given is a gift from the owner, not as wages that we've earned because we cannot earn it. So their pride was saying, we've done something. God's saying, no, I'm the one that's doing something. They were ignorant. How were they ignorant? Well, they were ignorant in what is true greatness. They thought that ignorant was about where you sat, right? If you sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand, you are where it's at. That means you're great. She wants Jesus to commit right now at this moment that James and John will be the two sitting by him in heaven one day. In this era, sitting closer meant you had more power. So imagine what this looks like. So I'm going to give you a picture of this. Imagine you're on a landing craft in 1941, 1942, sorry, and you're getting ready to land with a bunch of other Marines on Guadalcanal, the very first battle of the Pacific. And you're on the boat, and the boat's rocking, and there's bullets flying and mortars and bombs going off. And you, you're a Marine in there, and you, you reach up, and you tap the general on the, head, on the shoulder, and you go... Hey, you know, when we get to VJ Day and we have that ticker tape parade in New York City, can I sit in the lead car? Could I sit with you at the front of the parade? 
I mean, just, just, just putting it out there. I mean, how ridiculous is that? The war hasn't even started for these Marines and for the U.S. Navy, and yet he's already asking for a position. This is the same thing with James and John. They're not there yet. They haven't even gotten to the tough stuff yet. I mean, this has been a cakewalk by comparison. But this is exactly what James and John are asking. And Jesus is saying, you just don't understand. The kingdom I'm going to bring in at first is going to be a kingdom of humiliation. It's going to be a kingdom of suffering. It's going to be a kingdom of sacrifice. And yes, there will be triumph and joy and glory, but we've got to get through all this other first. See, he's bl- they're blind to the nature of true kingdom greatness. It's not about what you've earned and what you've done, but it's about what he's done and going low to serve others. We'll see this more here in a minute in verse 22. But let's get to this trusting thing. So we've got prideful, arrogant, or ignorant, trusting. Well, how does this work? Well, she's going to the right place, isn't she? She could have gone anywhere. She could have gone to the Fishers Association of the Sea of Galilee and asked for a position for her boys. She could have gone anywhere, but she goes to Jesus. See, the boys maybe indirectly are, but mom is definitely trusting Jesus with caring for her boys. This is a Christian question. You don't go to Jesus to ask him for something if you don't believe he's God. So this is a question for you moms in the room. Moms, how should you be praying? Because we're on, let's be honest, mom's prayers are sweet. Mom's praying for their children and their grandchildren. Those are some of the sweetest prayers in the universe. So moms, how do we pray? Now, James and John were ambitious and they were wrong, but their mom was actually a whole lot closer to right. A whole lot closer. So how do we pray for our kids? How do we pray for other people's kids? Are we wanting them to rise to the top of the class? Are we wanting them to find a good mate, have a good job, retire well someday, do something of value? See, that's still thinking the world's way of thinking. Jesus wants us to think like he does. So maybe our prayers, and I know this is scary, but maybe our prayers need to be, Lord, give my kids suffering so that they'll learn to follow you. Give my kids hardship. Now that's hard because in America, we're all about eliminating pain and hardship. We have whole businesses that are out there just to have you be able to take something to get rid of a pain or to make things easier. We'll bring the food to you and we'll cook it for you, right? So can we pray like this mother should have been praying? Lord, make my boys into servants of you by whatever means is necessary. That's a scary, scary prayer. And I'm glad you moms are doing it. I don't have to. Um, (laughs) Now, just kidding. Men, we should be praying the same. Jesus wants them to be for what he wants them to be for, not for what the world wants them for. These are hard things to pray. So Jesus now is going to clarify what they are asking for. Verse 22, Jesus answered, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we are able. So now he turns away from mom and is talking to the two boys. Right? He's turned to James and John. They're in this small group together. He looks right at him and goes, you guys, I know you did this. Do you really think you can take this cup? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. 
So this is an interesting response, isn't it? Drink this cup. Now, this, the phrase of a cup in the Bible is used for all sorts of things, blessing, curses, honor, everything. But in here, in, in Matthew, the best explanation is what we see in Matthew 26, 39, where Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, take this cup from me. And what he's talking about is the suffering he's about to endure. Now remember, Jesus' suffering is different than the apostles'. Jesus' suffering is, yes, he's being hurt on the cross, and he's having all of that, but he's also having God's wrath poured onto him. And when he says, disciples, are you going to suffer like me? He's not saying God's going to pour his wrath out on them, but that they are going to suffer physically. He's saying, do you, are, are you really going to suffer physically? You know, we all have cups to drink, and our suffering is different. Like Lynn talked about today, there's people that are suffering because of persecution. There are others of us that are suffering because of the fall. We're suffering because of people's wrongs against us. We're suffering about the position we find ourselves in in life right now. But we need to remember that many times the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffering. Yeah, sure, there's blessings, and we know that heaven is going to be no suffering for eternity, and that's a lot longer than even a 90-year-old life. But yes, there still is suffering. It doesn't, it doesn't mitigate it, right? Just like with Jesus, the fact that he's raising from the dead doesn't change that it's going to suffer for a while. It's going to really stink. It's going to be bad. And we're that same way. But we need to see suffering rightly. J.C. Ryle says, We ask that God would make us holy and good, and that's a good request. But are we prepared for sanctification of the process? Any process that God would put us through in his wisdom? Are we really ready to be purified by affliction and suffering? Weaned by the world by bereavement, draw near to God by losses and sickness and sorrow? See, true greatness comes from suffering. There's suffering involved with it. I know some of you are suffering, and I keep coming back to this, and I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, that what you are suffering for the Lord in obedience to him, in submission to him, no matter how painful, is taking you somewhere where you would not go on your own. Suffering produces depth of character and love for the Lord that no other thing can do. Maybe you're a husband or wife here and you have a deadbeat spouse. Well, that deadbeat spouse, because you can't depend on them, is driving you deeper into a walk and a trust with the Lord. Your intimacy with the Lord is there only because of the trial you've gone through. Maybe you, have, you are a husband and your wife becomes infirm. She becomes disabled. You never would have grown into the man you are when you have to put your daily trust in him every single day just to care for your spouse. Maybe you have a friend who's walking through doubt and is walking away from their faith. And you sit down and, and you begin pouring out the truth of God's word. And yes, it stinks to see them walking away, but your faith is going deeper and deeper and deeper. Maybe you're a child who's called to submit to an unbelieving, awful parent. You understand what it means to have a good father better than any of us who had good dads in real life. These trials take us to places we would never go. Trials and suffering take us to places we would never go on our own and produce in us things we could never produce on our own. 
We could sit back and go, I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to memorize, and I'm going to work my tail off to try and know God well. It's going to pale in comparison to the one over here who has suffered and has had to plead and get down on their knees and cry out to God. So suffering is not wasted, even if no one sees it, even if it's something where you're like, I don't see a point. Suffering is not wasted. Look at what 2 Corinthians 4 says. For this light and momentary affliction. That's our lives, right? He just said it was light and momentary. Okay? Does, 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 does 80 years feel like light and momentary? It feels longer than that. But he says it's light and momentary. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The glory is going to weigh us down. All the glory that we will see due to the suffering we went through. As we look to things that are seen, but to the, not, to, not seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That's our lives. But the things that are unseen are eternal. See, as you walk through suffering in this life, the Lord builds up in you the, what you're going to experience for eternity with him. You get a foretaste of heaven in a way that many of us cannot comprehend. This is what he's talking about in drinking his cup. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You will drink my cup. Jesus is saying, you're actually not going to get a choice in the matter. This is going to happen to you. As a matter of fact, these two men, James and John, represent the first disciple to die and the last disciple to die. Interesting, huh? James was killed in Acts 12. And they, they lock Peter up, and then Peter gets out of jail with an angel. That's the story of James. He's the first disciple, one of the 12, to be put to death. Now, John the Apostle, they tried to kill him. They boiled him alive. It didn't take so they kicked him out and put him on an island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. He would be the one to outlive every other disciple by 20 to 30 years. So we've got either end of the ones who drink the cup. Now the disciples who are standing around decide they want to have in on this action. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, which is kind of ironic because in the book of Mark, which is also recounting this story. Mark 9 comes before where we're at, and they're sitting around what? They're arguing about who's the greatest. So they're all bad. They're like, they're not mad because James and John have done something wrong. They're just mad that they got there first. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're going, what, well, I was going to ask for that. Oh, man. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. Jesus is emphatically stating this in verse 26. This is not the way we do things. We are not going to use our authority to abuse. Authority does not come from size, power, skills, etc. It comes from serving. And Jesus is going to lay that out here in a second. But first, he does some negative examples. The Romans were big into this. The Romans demanded loyalty which is why they wouldn't allow new religions to spring up, which is why they had soldiers everywhere, which is why they put their standards all over the place. Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. And if you weren't loyal, they'd make you loyal. It says, the Gentiles lord it over them. 
Their authority and their pride is all about themselves and holding themselves up. Power leads to pride, leads to abuse. This goes for governments and businesses and churches and families. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is what our culture is saying all the time now. And if you haven't seen this, you need to look a little closer because it's there. Our culture is saying all authority is bad. All authority is automatically abusive. If you're an authority, you're an abuser. You're an oppressor. It doesn't matter whether you're the nicest person in authority and you take good care of the people under you. By definition, you're an abuser. In, in actuality, what they're saying is, I don't want to obey God, but that doesn't look very good on a march through a downtown Portland. It doesn't look very good on a bumper sticker. So instead, instead of saying, I don't want to obey the authority of the universe, they'll say something like, authority is abusive, or all authority is a bad, or resist authority. In actuality, their hearts need to be changed towards God because it's his authority that they're rebelling against ultimately. So what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is he's saying it's not having authority that's the problem. It's how we exercise it that's the problem. Yes, authority can be abused, and we have lots of examples of that. But God is the one who grants authority to rulers, and he's the one that says you must use it rightly. He's also the one that's going to come in and take care of those who abuse authority which doesn't mean we look past it, which doesn't mean we condone it, which doesn't mean we sweep it under the rug, but recognize that no matter what punishment we give to someone who abuses authority, God's punishment is worse. Romans 13 gives us a picture of that. So these Gentiles, their view of greatness is no suffering, no serving, everybody's working for me. Jesus's is the exact opposite. I've often wondered, can we as Americans... Can we be servants like Jesus when so much of our culture is about elevating the individual and making us the master of our own universe? Christians the world over don't have to worry about this because they have no authority. They have no power. They are on the bottom. But our different kingdom is what we're to be. Jesus is saying that the kingdom over which he reigns, greatness is obtained by pursuing a course of action opposite of the world. We are to go by pouring ourselves out, not by hoarding to ourselves. So are you great in the eyes of Christ, or are you great in the eyes of the world? Verse 26, now we get into the, the last section here where Jesus starts saying, this is what a true leader looks like. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving and being a slave are the connections to Jesus in this passage. Plato wrote, how can anyone be happy if they're a slave of anyone else? In this world at this time, to, to be a slave or a servant was to literally be the very bottom of the hierarchy. They were of no value except for what you could make them do. But instead, we're to get our self-worth from following Jesus. Instead of using people, we are to serve them. See, here's the thing, and I just want to clarify this for you. We have no volunteers in our church. None. 
Volunteering is what you do to then put on your CV or your resume or your job application to say, I volunteered, here's where it's at. We have no volunteers here at this church. What we have is we have servants. This is the way things are supposed to be. I'm not volunteering my time to meet a need for this nebulous church thing. No, I'm serving God's people. I'm serving. So we have children's ministry servants who are currently working with our children right now, serving you, serving them. We have a tech crew that serves every morning, even coming in on days off to fix random glitches that come out of nowhere. We've got security people that, yes, they get up all the time. They don't have to go to the bathroom, okay? They are going to check on your cars to make sure they're okay. We have a crew that sets up this room. These are servants. Our worship teams are serving. This is what we have. We have a women's ministry team that serves alongside Katie to help our women on their Thursday Bible studies. We serve because of how we were served by Jesus on the cross. We serve others because that's what Jesus did for us. Let me show this to you. I want to show it. This is kind of a a breakdown. Go ahead and put it up there for me. You can kind of see how this all breaks down. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Even as the Son of Man came to be served. So that's tied back to that first line. And then Jesus came as a slave to give his ransom for many. Got chopped off there. It's on the screen back there, though. But the idea here is that there's there's a connection here. Jesus first says, true greatness lies in serving. Jesus then says, you are to be a slave like I am a slave. Then he says, I came to serve. This was my purpose, to come down and to serve. And lastly, he is paying the ransom for us. Great among you must be a servant. That's what we do. First among you must be a slave. That's who we are. The word for servant is the word dikanos, which is where we get the word deacon from. It means one who waits tables. The servants wait the tables. Yeah, it might be for little people over here. Okay? The table's cuter, and the chairs are cuter, and they get snacks in the middle. Sorry, we don't have that for you adults. But some of the servants is with the high schoolers up here. They're a little bit bigger, not quite as cute, but still, we like them. We've got servants that set tables out here. This word deacon and the word, uh, the, the other word that's used for slave can be translated as minister or elder. There are places in America today where if you're a minister, it's considered a place of status. Here in, in Portland, it's not so much. But the idea is, is not, I'm a minister and the elders like Ray, who was just up here, Right? The, the, the elders, we are not to be up here and have a prestige. We are to be the chief servants. We are to be the ones that serve first and foremost. We're not to be like, huh, those apostles, disciples, they had to serve. We're not serving. You know, we're above that. Well, no, that's a lie. See, the thing is, humility says, I'm going to rush to serve before you. I'm not going to be served by you. In the pagan world, humility was not a virtue, it was a vice. A few weeks ago, my littlest was playing flag football, and they, he played for the I-9, which is they do a one-day-a-week thing, and they have these little uh, virtue, character virtues, 
Um, and, they, and they have like a certain word. So, you know, like one week it was, you know, courage, and another week it was determination. Well, this one week, and I was helping uh, being an assistant coach, and the head coach is a smart guy. He's a college-educated guy. He knows his football. He's great with the kids. His name was John, too, but uh, it's cool. He's standing up there, and he goes, today's word is humility. And I was like, ooh, okay, let's go. So I'm sitting there, and, you know, these, these boys, you know, none of them are, as far as I know, none of them are believers. Their parents aren't believers. And they're trying to define humility. And for some reason, my son, which is not necessarily his character, but he was quiet. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. I'm pretty sure he might have had the answer. But this, this circle of boys didn't do it. And the coach, this was the part that was amazing. He goes, you know, I don't really know how to define that. I think humility is like, I don't know, working hard. I really don't know what humility is. I was like, wow. This 30-something-year-old college-educated guy could not give me a definition of humility. See, I think our world gets it backwards. Ironically, one of the characteristics they do on a different day is pride, all right? And so I think that's interesting that our world throws that word pride around, which means I feel good about myself and others should too. They miss the point of humility. Sometimes we do as well. We hide behind our theology. We say things like, I don't have a gift for that. I'm sorry, I don't have a gift for working in the nursery. I don't have a gift for cleaning things up. Oh, definitely, I don't have a gift for toilets, right? We have people here that fix toilets and fix light fixtures. That's amazing. Some of us hide behind our past service and say things like, I've already done my serving. I mean, come on, you know, I'm in my 80s. I've been serving this church for decades, longer than you've been alive, Pastor John. I'm done serving. See, both of these are just terrible ways to look at it as if there's a service meter that we've got to fill up or that I've done enough and now I don't have to do any more. Think about if Jesus did that with his, our forgiveness. Well, you know, I forgived you for the last 60 years. 61, you're on your own. See, we don't want a God that works with bartering and only gifting certain people. With now, granted, I mean, we can't all be Frank, the kid whisperer, who can get any baby to sleep right? We can't do that. We can't sing as beautiful as many of our worship leaders. I mean, Kaylee and Katie kick butt at worship. Sorry to call you both out, but we all can't do that. But we can all serve, right? The Lord calls us to serve. J.C. Ryle says, true greatness consists of not in receiving, but of giving. Not in selfish absorption of good things, but imparting good things to others. Not in being served, but by serving. Not in sitting still and being ministered to, but going out and ministering to others. See, Jesus came as a ransom for all of our sins, including the sin of wanting to avoid service. He came to allow us to serve, to free us to serve. And before you think that I'm now going to list all the things that you need to sign up for, that's not the point of this. That's, that's between you and the Lord. Instead, we need to see that what followers of Jesus Christ, the God-man who courageously and caringly walked to the cross on your behalf, he says, leadership in my church, in my body, is about going low. 
It's not about fighting for who's the closest to the elders and fighting about who's the number one. Instead, he's giving us practical advice to say, you want to know if you can finish your race? Serve. You want to know if you belong to Jesus? Serve. He will give you the strength to do it. Servants take commands. They may be nice, but in the world's eyes, they're not very valuable. In Jesus' eyes, he says, those are mine. Those are my sheep. Jesus always says things that are hard for his disciples to understand. And here he says the exact thing that they would have never thought they could hear. So we're to serve. We're to not look to our own prestige. We're to not elevate ourselves. We're instead to pursue going low and serving. And finally, the Apostle Paul gets this. The Apostle Paul says this clearly. Look at Philippians. This is a famous, famous passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a table waiter. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the scandalous cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the God, Father. glory to God the Father. This is the picture. Jesus' elevation was by going low. Our elevation is by going low. And so finally, as we now transition and move towards our communion today that we're going to celebrate, we look at the ransom. It says, he gave his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom means to pay a price to get someone back. This would be what you'd do to buy a slave back. First Timothy tells us, for there's one God and mediator between God, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So three quick points and then we're done. One, ransom means that we are enslaved to something. We all, by default, because we're children of Adam, we are slaves to sin from the moment we're born. We are enslaved in bondage. There are chains all over us holding us into our sins. Now, the good news is, is the second point, and that is a price has been paid. Someone else paid the price. 1 Peter 1.19 says the precious blood of Christ was paid. And so the next step is we don't belong to the old master. We belong to a new master. This new master is Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 20, 28, he says that he obtained the church with his blood. He purchased us back. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you were bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to Christ. So the good news is sin is not our master anymore. When we come up here and we, we have communion and we talk about Jesus' body being broken and his blood being poured out, that was the payment for us to leave bondage to sin, to the flesh, to death, to become alive for the first time. We have been ransomed to a new master. Our sin enslaves us. Jesus breaks those chains. 
He is now our true master. And only by serving him, our courageous, our, our caring shepherd, the hero of the story, are we free.